And I will ask two or three questions first. The first one is the easy one, before we try and trip the bishop up in any way, uh, and that is to say, can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you've reached this point? Yes, I can. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to start? Yeah. Um, I am the son of a musician and uh, a classicist, a classics teacher, and my grandparents on my father's side were both missionaries. They were medical missionaries out in China between the wars, and then came back. My grandfather headed up the Mild May Mission Hospital during the Blitz and in the years after that. And my grandmother, who lived until I was about 30 years old, made it her mission in life to convert her grandchildren, which was a very good thing to do. So she paid for us every day, and she sent us all Bible-reading notes and got us into reading the Bible from the age of about six onwards. And uh, not all of my brothers and my sister sort of managed to persevere with that, but I kept going. I I thought this was quite important. And um, so uh, from quite an early age, I was sort of raised within... uh, that particular Christian setting, my grandmother looking out for me, and uh, became a a really committed Christian at school, the age of 13, and uh, from then on was kind of wondering about whether God was calling me to ordain ministry, or uh, to be a lawyer, or to be a musician, those sort of three sort of choices that I had. And uh, I went off and read law at university, and increasingly felt that uh, perhaps the law, I quite enjoyed law, but I I passed from law to grace. I, um, I decided that perhaps I, uh, I was being called in a different direction. So, um, so after university, I became a caretaker and youth worker in a church in, in North London, in Islington, and then went back to study theology, where I met my wife in a Rowan Williams lecture, as you do. So that was quite something. Not many people can say that. And uh, we ran the Christian Union at her college, at King's College in Cambridge, together, which was very exciting, and then have had parish ministry in Redditch, which is just south of Birmingham, uh, for four years, and, uh, and then down in London for the best part of 20 years, uh, six years in Notting Hill, and 12 years in Twickenham. And so uh, I think various people I've met during my travels in Surrey so far sort of were in Notting Hill, and then went to Twickenham, and then I moved out into to Surrey. But uh, I did a little detour to Birmingham where I was a bishop, Bishop of Aston, for six years, uh, particularly heading up the kind of mission of um, the churches in the Diocese of Birmingham, and uh, have now made my way uh, to, to Guildford, which is very exciting, and started here at the beginning of February, and was formally kind of had a big service in the cathedral at the end of February, and have been travelling around ever since. I must say, driving around the, the Surrey roads, especially on lovely days like this, is a, is a great treat, so I'm very much enjoying that. Great. I mean, you're, you're, clearly you come across as a very passionate man. So can you just tell us what excites you about the state of the church today? Wow, well, that's a good one, isn't it? Um, of course, if you look at the worldwide church today, what, what happened for the first 1900 years of the church was that it sort of grew really very gradually over 1900 years. And over the last 100 years, it's gone woomph and has grown just hugely worldwide. And it's easy to lose that perspective in England and in Western Europe, where we sometimes struggle with ageing congregations, which, uh, and, and you know, how do we draw younger people in, and so on. But we're the kind of exception worldwide, rather than the rule. And uh, it's good to be reminded of that from time to time. I think the thing I find really exciting as a Christian believer is, is seeing where lives are really touched and transformed by God. And... Um, I've made it my practice since becoming a bishop uh, to uh, arrive very early for confirmation services. 
much to the uh, dismay of the clergy who have to turn up rather earlier than usual. And uh, in order that I can sit down with each of the confirmation candidates and say, well, what has brought you to the point of standing up today and declaring your faith in, in God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit? And the great thing about that, it's more for my benefit than anyone else's, because actually it means I've heard about seven or 800 Brummy Christians just on the point when they're about to confirm their faith in, in Christ. And I've heard their stories, the stories of 800 different pilgrims' progresses, the way that they've made their way into a living relationship with Christ. And I just find that incredibly exciting. I do think that living as a Christian is the very best way to live, um, that's why I would love to see our churches grow and I would love to see younger people come in as well because it's the very best way to live for every generation. And, um, and I also love it when churches have a real transforming effect on the communities they serve. It doesn't have to be very dramatic, but so often churches are the heart of the, the community. And where that's going on, I think it's just a, a brilliant reflection of the, of the love of God for the world uh, that he's made. So I guess those are the things that excite me. And... Uh, and the church at the moment, I think I'm excited because in the Church of England especially, we, we are recognising there are some real challenges in front of us. We're not sort of pretending that uh, it's all everything in the garden's rosy. And that is meaning that I think increasingly as Christians, we're trying to think, well, how do we reach out in, in different ways, in new ways, uh, as well as, um, as what we're doing already? And, um, and that's exciting. There seems to be a lot of creativity around as we seek to reach out to people with the love of Christ in perhaps uh, ways that the church hasn't tried to do before, but in order to reach them uh, for him. Mm, great. God is exciting because he's always on the move. Uh, as were the clergy when you said you arrive early. They were all taking notes, uh, which is good. <laughs> so rather than ask my next question, let's just throw it open. Who, who's going to... We have, a, we have a roving mic so you can be heard. Um, I was very interested to hear that you had composed an anthem that was sung at your installation. Um, what have you been involved with music since starting the law? Have you kept the music going? Thank you very much. Yes, well, I, uh, because my dad's a musician, we were all brought up with lots of music in the house, and that was a great privilege and joy. And... Um, at the age of uh, 12 or so, I, I started learning the bassoon, which is a great instrument to learn, because actually you don't have to be quite as good as you do at most instruments, because they're always in <laughs> massive demand in orchestras. So, um, so quite quickly I ended up uh, playing in a very exciting orchestra, in the National Youth Orchestra, sort of up and down the country, which was brilliant. And, uh, and meanwhile, I've, I've sung quite a lot, so I was singing in school choirs and chapel choirs and that kind of thing. And uh, I also really enjoy improvising on the piano. So in order to get out, uh, particularly as a teenager, my sort of teenage angst to sort of, I would just sit down and kind of improvise. And uh, one of my party tricks is playing the piano backwards. So that's, uh, that's something which I, I may try and do at some stage, but not tonight. Uh, I'm probably getting a little arthritic and stiff for that, but, um, but that's quite fun. And just occasionally, yes, I, I do uh, compose music as well. and quite enjoy doing that, but I haven't done that for quite a long while. Uh, it is tricky, actually, being a musician and a clergy person, because you have so many evenings out, and you tend to be busy on Sundays, and uh, quite often on Saturdays as well. So I haven't really done very much music. Uh, I haven't done much bassoon for a very long time. But uh, there's an orchestra called the New English Orchestra, who were playing in Birmingham Town Hall about three years ago. 
And someone remembered that I'd used to play with them about 30 years before, and they very rashly said, asked whether I would like to play again. And I, I didn't tell them that my bassoon had been in its case for the past 30 years. But uh, anyway, I got it out and practiced it a little bit each day, and it actually got up to a reasonable sort of standard. And so I played my bassoon there, and then I came out from the bassoon section and gave a little sort of talk to the assembled audience as well, which was quite good fun. So, uh, but I do love listening to music. Sometimes when I'm travelling along the Surrey roads, I'll have the uh, lovely DVD on, uh, CD on, not DVD. No, that would be dangerous. <laughs> CD is the word I'm looking for. And, uh, and love listening to music along the way. And I have two daughters who are very, very musical as well, which is great. And a wife who is very musical. What is your vision for the diocese, please? You have three minutes. <laughs> As a diocese, we're, we're hugely blessed um, in many, many ways. We have a lot of very able and gifted people. We have um, a fair amount of money to spend on mission, one kind or another. A lot of our churches have children's workers or youth workers or other people to, to help sustain the ministry. And... Um, and actually, our clergy often are, are leading parishes with a comparatively small number of people in them. It doesn't feel like that, I'm sure, if you're a clergy person here. But, but when I tell you that the average parish size in, in Birmingham, say, would be about 15,000, the, the average parish size here is perhaps about four or 5,000. So it's a very different kettle of fish. And, um, and, it, and also, perhaps because of that, our church going, compared to many parts of the country, is quite high. And actually, we have a larger number of children attending our churches than any other uh, diocese in the country. So, um, so we've got some real resources and some good things going on. Uh, but I'm also very conscious of our Lord's words that, that to those to whom much is given, much will be required. And, uh, and I think one of the issues, if, if I come straight here from Twickenham, I think I wouldn't have recognised this so sharply. But having spent six years in Birmingham been very conscious that the Church of England across the nation really needs churches, especially in the southeast, where there is, in general, rather more money around uh, and all the rest, to be really seeking to invest in the mission of the church across the country and indeed across the world. And, uh, and it seems to me if we have a vision simply for keeping our churches going in Guildford Diocese, even if they're going really quite well, that isn't a big enough vision. God is, is wanting to sort of raise our, our game uh, in order that we can be a resource to other uh, places round about. One thing you may have heard, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, has in recently encouraged us that we need to have about 50% more ordinance. It's not all about the clergy, but it's something about the clergy. And uh, because a lot of our clergy are retiring in the next 10 years, we need quite a lot more ordinance to take their place. And uh, one thing I'm very excited about in Guildford Diocese, and I've already begun to set this up, is the idea of going round like a recruiting officer, uh, encouraging people to consider ordained ministry, uh, younger people and older people to consider ordained ministry for themselves. And from my experience in Birmingham, actually if we're a bit more proactive about it, it is astonishing how many people start stepping forward, really good people. And uh, just one evening in Birmingham where I preached about ordination, we ended up with seven people who uh, ended up going forward and uh, very good people who are now training or in their curacies. So I'm sort of excited about that. How can we actually, uh, how can the mission of God in this place actually spill over and be a blessing uh, roundabout? 
just in case we're feeling a little bit pleased with ourselves, um, because we do have the largest number of children worshipping in any uh, diocese, and we do have quite high levels of church going. Um, I keep this badge in my pocket, which keeps me humble. And um, uh, you won't really be able to see it very well, but you'll see that most of it is coloured yellow. And then there are two rather small stripes. Can you see that vaguely from there? I should have it blown up, this badge, be useful. But there's a tiny little brown stripe there, which is people who are worshipping regularly in Church of England churches in Guildford Diocese. And there's a rather larger blue stripe there, which is those who are worshipping regularly in every other kind of church in Guildford Diocese. And as you can see, about 94% of the circle is, uh, is yellow, which are people who are not worshipping anywhere in Guildford Diocese. So compared to other parts of the country, we're doing quite well. The reality is we're quite a small minority uh, even in Guildford, even in Surrey and uh, North East Hampshire that the Guildford Diocese uh, serves. And, and I really feel that we, we do need to be drawing others into the life of Christ, into the life of the Christian community. I've got some, as, as a lot of people here, uh, have exciting ideas about how that might happen in, in local communities. And I think it's something we need to be quite intentional about, praying about uh, being willing to sacrifice some of our own um, likes and dislikes, in order that we can draw others into the life of Christ. And uh, I guess it's something about that. My vision for the diocese is more than that, but, uh, but that's part of it. Dennis Evans from Hascombe. Um, what was your position on the consecration of women as bishops? And, and now that it has happened, do you feel threatened by them? <laughs> <laughs> Well, my wife told me to say this, but uh, <laughs> I'm actually one of two Church of England bishops. I was the first ever, I think, to move with his wife's job. So no Church of England bishop, as far as I know, has ever done that. I moved into my wife's vicarage in, uh, in Birmingham because she is ordained, and, uh, and that was great. And um, so I fully believe in ordained women. You'd be glad to hear, and have done for many a long year. And, uh, and I praise God for the way that so many very able women have come forward into ordained ministry since we started ordaining women to the priesthood, diaconate first, then the priesthood, and now with bishops. I, I happen to know the three women so far who've been made bishops. They're all people of remarkable calibre. And, uh, of course, we have, I think, probably a first in the world. I'm not sure there's any denomination in the world which has a married couple, both of whom are bishops, which we're about to have. So that's really quite interesting. One of them is about to retire, the chap, and the, the girl, Alison, uh, is about to take on her role as Bishop of Hull. So um, I think it's very exciting. And I do increasingly feel, um, from, from the point of view of being in the House of Bishops and the College of Bishops, the House of Bishops are sort of diocesan bishops and those who serve on General Synod. The College of Bishops is all the bishops together. And um, I increasingly feel all male company, uh, it gets a bit wearing after a while, and it can get rather competitive as well, and rather difficult, and already we are beginning to feel, actually having women in the House of Bishops and College of Bishops is beginning to make a, a really positive impact, I think, on our life as a, as a body, and will, I'm sure, have a really positive impact on the life of the wider church. We are committed in the Church of England to uh, safeguarding the, the, those who don't believe that this is the right step forward, and there are uh, a number of churches around, not, not very many in Guildford Diocese, but more in some other dioceses, which uh, don't feel that this has been a right move. And uh, we're seeking to play 
fair with people who uh, came into the church when it hadn't made that move and, uh, and, and remained within it as it has. And I think that's been the right thing to do, uh, even though it does make for a slightly messy uh, church polity in some ways. So I'm all in favour. I think it's all very exciting. Uh, hi, Alexandra Jones from St Martin's at Blackheath. Um, I just wanted to think what your views were on home groups. We have a, a lot of home groups in the parish, and I think sometimes the biggest issue we feel is that we get lots of people to come to the home group, but sometimes trying to transfer that over to them coming to church does seem to be a bit of a high wall. I wonder what your thoughts were on that. That's a very interesting question. I, I don't know many churches where it's easier to get people into small groups than it is to, to get them into the, the wider life of the church. Are, are there any other churches here which would see that? I think that's quite an unusual situation. I have a study group in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, and many of the women who come to that don't find it easy to come to church, so mm. don't come to church and on Sunday. It doesn't transfer to that. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I think any gathering where you're drawing people together around prayer, around the scriptures, around support for one another is a really good gathering. And I think even if some of the people who attend those gatherings don't end up coming to the Sunday morning or whatever, uh, it's still massively valuable what you're doing. And I would really encourage you to to keep doing it. Um, I, I do think in quite a lot of our activities, I'm thinking more of things like messy church and sort of ways of, or mums and toddlers groups or whatever else. I sometimes think we, we uh, don't realise the very large uh, step that is needed between people attending those activities, sometimes on the fringe of church, and actually really becoming part of the worshipping life of the church. And certainly in my experience as a vicar over many years, uh, we thought quite consciously about how many different stepping stones are needed from one to the other. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes if it's too big a stride, uh, then actually do we need to put another stepping stone down? So, for example, in, in a church in Twickenham that I led, we had a big open uh, group for mothers and fathers, your nanny as well, and, and children to, to come. And it took place in church and we were absolutely upfront with people. We said, this is run by the church, it's run by Christian people, but we won't preach at you, we won't pray, we won't, um, uh, or not in public, we won't uh, sing any songs or anything. It's just open to the community, just come along. And then off the back of that, uh, a little bit later on, people there were starting to say, well, it would be nice if you could do something a bit more, you know, for the children, a bit more spiritual. So we said, okay, well, on another morning, and it became two mornings, we will actually run, a, run groups where we will, will have uh, a, a little bit of worship, we'll have a Bible story, we'll pray for the children, and so on. You know, sign up if you'd like to come. And actually, it became oversubscribed, so we had to sort of, that was very exciting. Uh, but even from there, to go into the sort of worshipping life of the bigger community was too big a step. So, so then we ran a parenting course off the back of that. And we said, well, this parenting course, you know, we'll be learning about communication, about discipline, about, you know, parenting things. And the fifth week, which is optional, we will be learning about how to develop the spiritual life of your, of your child. And people came on that and got very excited about that, and all of them stayed for the optional week. And then we did an alpha course. Uh, you know, if you'd like to learn more about the Christian faith, uh, then, you know, we have this on offer. And then by that stage, people were really starting to come into the, the worshipping life of the church. But it took took sort of four stepping stones. Mm -hmm. And the lovely thing about doing it that way, it's quite 
it obviously takes quite a lot of resources. You can't do that with every age group. You have to almost decide which group you're going to particularly focus on. But the lovely thing about doing that was that we were being completely upfront and honest about what every resource was. We weren't pretending to do one thing and really doing another, which sometimes is a, a real problem in church life, I think, where we sort of pretend we're running a playgroup and, in fact, we're really wanting to sort of convert people. We were actually saying, no, we're, we're doing these things and we'll be absolutely upfront with the community uh, about each stage. And actually, we saw a really very steady stream of people coming into the life of the church, but it took that number of steps to do that. Some people would say, why, why do you bother? You know, why is it important? I think it is important because I think the church is an all-age community and I think it's incredibly important that we are together as a community from time to time and that we do seek to draw people into that. I just want to ask, as, as humble members of the diocese, and this is a slightly personal question, what three things can we maybe two, maybe four, can we support you in, in prayer? It is a, I mean, for every, for all of us, you know, we do have a huge challenge ahead. I think we do need to acknowledge that, that actually if we're seeking to be faithful to Christ in this generation and to pass on the baton of faith to future generations, that is a very big job. And I think for me, I'm just conscious there are a thousand and one things that I could be doing and just trying to, and good things that I could be doing, and just trying to pray, Lord, help me to see what is it that you're calling me to do. Uh, and, uh, and that's not always easy. Sometimes there are so many pressures, and, and any clergy person here, and probably all of us would say much the same, uh, you know, there are so many pressures, there are so many things that, that, uh, that, that pull on our time. And yet to be able to kind of stand back and, and, uh, and really uh, seek God and seek the bigger picture... Is, is so important if we don't just get endlessly reactive um, uh, responding to the demands of those around us or maybe the inner demands in our own hearts. And uh, so I suppose, uh, I mean, it's, it's rather what Solomon paid for, you know, wisdom, discernment, to know what is the, the right way to, to walk in day by day. I very much value fair for that. Um, we're in a slightly funny position. Our, our youngest child, we have four children, and our youngest girl is doing GCSEs just uh, this summer and has needed to finish off in Birmingham. So my wife is still living up in Birmingham with, uh, with Lydia and the dog at the moment. And uh, we're very much looking forward to the day, which is only about a month or a little bit more off when, uh, when they'll be able to move down and we'll do the move properly. Be very glad to hear the furniture removers that we've employed are called Bishop's Move. <laughs> That's right. Seems very sensible. <laughs> and then our wonderful oldest child, Hannah, is getting married in the summer, which is very exciting. She's marrying a lovely Christian chap called Peter, who's from Leipzig. And, uh, and the two of them are then going to be going off to Kenya for a few months and uh, just really value prayer for, for them and that, and uh, the early months of their married life. They're uh, a wonderful couple. Uh, they inspire and challenge me quite a lot. They're rather more radical than I am in some aspects of their <laughs> discipleship, which is always good, isn't it, if you're challenged by your children. And, uh, and they're, they're great, but do pray for them, and especially, yeah, Kenya, as many other parts of the world at the moment, doesn't, is not without its problems. Um, and I'm hoping, talking about that, to travel to Nigeria in November. You may know that we have a, a long-standing diocesan link between the Diocese of Guildford and Nigeria, 
which now has about 150 dioceses, so it's a little bit impossible, this link. Uh, it's a place where there are more Anglicans than anywhere, anywhere else in the world. Uh, and, uh, and it's also a place where, as we know, there's a lot of trouble, especially in the north with Boko Haram and all that appalling stuff going on there. So, um, so just praying, and there's some difficulties between our churches as well. The church in Nigeria tends to think that the Church of England is a bit too liberal and, uh, and all the rest. So just really value prayer for those initial conversations with archbishops and bishops in Nigeria, just to say, let's, let's really work together and keep this partnership strong. So I guess those are some of the things. Oh, and we're appointing a new diocesan secretary, I hope, on Monday. So pray for wisdom, because... Uh, some of you won't know what an important thing a Dalston secretary is, but uh, in my experience, they are extraordinarily important. So if you could pray for us on Monday to appoint the right man or woman for that job, that would be great. Up here. Bishop, how are we going to encourage the teenagers and young people to come to church when they find so many other things more attractive on a Sunday morning? Mm, thank you very much. <clears throat> one question there is Sunday morning isn't it is, is Sunday morning a good time for teenagers <laughs> <laughs> I have just uh, passing through the, my hair has gone much greater than it was because we've seen most of our children through teenage years and we've still got one of them in teenage years and, uh, and for many of them Sunday morning isn't a very good time it's either not a good time because they're lying in or it's not, not a good time because they're playing sport and, and everything else. And, uh, and so we do need to ask the question, well, how do we uh, develop church life, a church life which, which does fit with people's lives? And that sounds a bit sort of consumerist, but actually it's really important that we should look to do that, I think. And so in my last church, um, it was partly inspired by the fact my, one of my own children was playing rugby on a Sunday morning very regularly, as for a lot of his mates, we, we, we actually developed a, a, an afternoon service, and a number of churches have done this. You have a service about 4 or 4.30, 5 o'clock maybe, and, uh, and you open it up to families and uh, young people uh, who may well be visiting Granny on a, uh, in the day or maybe playing rugby or whatever else, just thinking creatively about how we, how we do that. Uh, we've been thinking about this morning with the clergy meeting about uh, young people and what, what we're doing for young people and I do think all the best uh, Christian or secular children and youth work has always about, been about how do we develop responsibility in young people? How do we grow them as leaders? And if you think about it in the Scouts or the Boys Brigade or Girls Brigade or uh, Sunday School movement at its best, it hasn't been just we lay on a Sunday school for the children or we lay on a youth group for the youth uh, because that just encourages sort of consumerism it's actually been much more about how can we actually take the gifts that young people and children have and how can they be exercised in the life of the church and the wider community. And the way that, that as soon as churches start doing that, they start to find, in general, much more buy-in from their children and young people because they want to feel they belong as well. They want to feel that they can contribute to the, the life of the church. And I think it's a little sort of trick that we sometimes miss. We assume that children need to be just sort of given stuff to do in order to keep them quiet on a Sunday morning, uh, instead of which we, we need to be fostering the discipleship of children and young people and helping them to see that they have a part to play in the life of the church. 
And then I think uh, we, we need to look at opportunities. There are round about, there are huge numbers of different youth camps, for example, and big youth celebrations uh, that take place in the summer and all the rest. A lot of things are laid on for us if we just uh, get involved with them. And so often, in my experience, young people take a big step forward if they go away on a, maybe a camp led by the Scripture Union or by Church Pastoral Aid Society, or, uh, or maybe they go off on Soul Survivor or whatever else. Uh, or if you're from more high church church, there's a fantastic Walsingham uh, youth pilgrimage where people, again, take real strides forward, or Teze, for those who've been uh, along to Teze, uh, strides forward in their Christian life. And I think we just need to be thinking slightly more imaginatively about children and young people than, than just thinking about how can we sort of twist their arm to come along on a Sunday morning. Great. Thank you very much. Um, just before we move, am I allowed to pray for the bishop? Is that all right? I I'm, think that would be very nice. I'm going off message now probably, but we'll, we'll pray and then we're moving into the, the second part of our evening. So let's just pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the passion of Bishop Andrew uh, and his love for you and of your people. We pray that you would give him great vision in this new role, vision for all that you wish him to do and the wisdom to discern what he should be doing. We pray that you would give him the strength to fulfil the role for which you've called him. We pray that you would give him support, good support around him, from the diocesan secretary, right through the staff, right through the clergy, right through uh, his family, and that he in turn would be able to support them equally. And so, Father, we pray for your protection over him and his family in all the practical logistics that they're facing in the next few weeks. So, Lord, we lift him up to you, and ask that your hand would be upon him, blessing him and guiding him, and uh, filling him and empowering him with your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of our Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated for our first reading. It's a reading from 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose and each will receive wages according to the labour of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I planted, says Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It's a rather humbling verse reminding us that in and of ourselves, we can't grow anything. My son Joe is a rugby player and would love to be six inches taller and six inches broader. Sadly, he now knows that it's not going to happen. My mother and father are gardeners and would love to be able to will their runner beans into winning the Wookiee Village Show. Much to their disappointment, they're not capable of growing those runner beans an extra millimetre. You and I can't grow anything, but of course we can make decisions that will either foster or hinder growth. The quality and quantity of seed that we use, the position in the flower bed where we plant that seed, and whether it's in full or partial sunlight, the nature of the soil and the manure we dig into it, the skill and consistency of our watering regime. All these things will separate the gold medalists in the Wookiee Village show from the also-rans. We are, says St. Paul, God's fellow workers, though with us, of course, as the infinitely junior partner. And the phrase he uses for fellow worker, sun ergo, is the origin of our English word synergy. And synergy means that we're able to achieve more working together than we could do working apart. In growing runner beans, indeed in growing many things, God and humanity often achieve more by working together than by going it alone. So why choose this rather unusual little gospel reading from John chapter 12 as our second reading this evening? Well, it mentions Andrew, of course. And any reading that mentions Andrew is okay by me. (laughs) Tends to get rather overshadowed by that loudmouth brother of his. And it mentions Gentiles coming to Jesus. And I, like I guess most of us, I'm sure most of us, are Gentiles ourselves who have come to Jesus. And that too is a real encouragement but it is a combination of two themes that strike me as especially important in this little gospel reading, the themes of growth and of sacrifice. As Jesus put it, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a single seed. If it dies, it produces many seeds. Growth, of course, is a theme in many of Jesus' parables, which is hardly surprising for someone brought up in an agricultural community. The mustard seed, the sower, the self-growing seed, and so on. It is true that Jesus is brutally realistic about the challenges of ministry. The sower, for example, has many disappointments along the way, just as Jesus did, and just as we too will. But there is still an overall expectation of growth, that while much of the seed will simply go to waste and get gobbled up by the birds or choked by the thorns, the seed that falls in good ground will bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. When Andrew was last mentioned in John's Gospel, he was bringing a little boy to meet Jesus, complete with packed lunch. Seeing what happened to that packed lunch, when Jesus blessed it, broke it, and distributed it to a very large number of people, shouldn't leave anyone in any doubt that growth is one of Jesus' specialist subjects. What is new and challenging in tonight's Gospel reading is the combination of growth and sacrifice. That a grain of wheat needs to be buried in the ground, in that sense to die, in order to yield a fruitful harvest. Jesus was here talking about his own death and resurrection, of course, which we were remembering two or three weeks back on Good Friday and Easter Day. But he is also extending that teaching to his followers. Without an element of sacrifice, he was saying, the grain of wheat will simply remain as a grain of wheat, gradually growing old on a shelf in the tool shed. It doesn't take long to pick up that sense of sacrifice in a growing church. Listen to some of the conversations and hear the kind of things that you often hear. I used to know everyone, but now I feel like I'm a stranger in my own church. The last vicar always used to come and visit me each week, but the new one doesn't seem to have the time. She often sends along a member of her visiting team instead. Don't get me wrong, I'm pleased that Jim and Sally have gone off to get ordained, but church hasn't been the same since they left. My husband and I used to go to the 8 o'clock service where there weren't any children, but now the vicar split the main morning service into two and we have to go along at nine, and it's noisy. In the old days, putting a fiver in the collection was seen as generous, but now we're just embarking on a £500,000 building project. Here's my favourite, a genuine comment from a woman after a drum kit had been introduced in worship for the very first time. If Jesus could see that, she hissed, he would turn in his grave. (laughs) There is real sacrifice for leaders of growing churches as well. Hard work and long hours seem pretty inescapable, even if proper time off is essential as well for balance and to get the wider picture. Grasping nettles, sometimes pruning existing ministries, which are fruitful, but not as fruitful as they once were, is often necessary, but it always hurts. Releasing your best people, say, to go off and get ordained, can be very costly. Others might look at growing churches and think that they've got it uh, all easy. Leaders of growing churches often face the envy of their colleagues. It's okay for you, but you don't know what it's like in my village. But the reality 
is that those who embrace growth also embrace sacrifice. It is much easier just to let things be, just to leave the seed on the shelf of the tool shed. Except that, as someone wisely put it, just doing more and more of the same will eventually lead to doing less and less of the same. The resources will simply run out. But why embrace that sacrifice? Why aspire to growth in the first place? Are we just another business like Tesco's or Sainsbury's seeking to grow our market share in the face of stiff competition from the new atheists and even the new churches? Are we just concerned for our livelihoods, especially those of us who are religious professionals, hoping against hope that our stipends will continue arriving month by month and our pension fund won't finally run out before we do? Do we perhaps have a rather nostalgic view of the English way of life, mourning the possible loss of the local church and the local vicar in much the same way as we mourn the possible loss of the local pub and the village bobby? For me, the desire to see the church grows from one place and one place alone. That I believe that following Christ and belonging to his family is the very best way to approach our living and most certainly the very best way to approach our dying. The thought of generations of men and women, young people and children, growing up without hope and purpose and the consolation of the Christian faith really troubles me. And given that Christian people, on average, give more and volunteer their time far more than their non-Christian neighbours, that prospect should trouble even unbelievers when they contemplate the future of our communities and of our civil society. The themes of our diocesan mission initiative, Common Purpose, developed under my predecessor, Bishop Christopher, seem to me worthy aspirations. They are growing in discipleship, growing in numbers, and growing in community engagement. But now is the time to turn those aspirations into a genuine strategy, and that strategy into action, as we commit ourselves to fellow working, to sacrificial synergy with God and with one another. It won't be an easy ride. If we are doing it properly, it will drive us constantly to our knees in prayer. It will require us to think afresh about our calling as a church and how we relate to the community around us. But I think it's going to be exciting as well. And in a diocese where many of our churches have grown significantly over the past 10 or 15 years, there is clearly everything to play for as we pray and work for the coming of God's kingdom. I planted, says St. Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Shall we pray?